Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is Dave Elich, and this chat is long overdue because he's one of the most mentioned drummers in this podcast by me, behind Lee Von Helm, of course. But yeah, Dave's played with the Mars Volta, the 1975, Miley Cyrus, Justin Timberlake, and many more. But many drummers today know him as a teacher's teacher. He's helped some of the best drummers fine-tune their playing, such as Jason Merker, Benny Greb, Thomas Hocka, Chris McHugh, and even Bill Burr, who I would love to get in this podcast. His zen-like approach to viewing drummers as athletes and listening to the body and how it relates to one's goals with drumming makes him one of the most sought-after drummers today. His online instructional course, aptly named Getting Out of Your Own Way, was just updated, and we certainly talk about all that in this episode, but I wanted to really get to know the drummer behind the teacher. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Dave about the five records that helped shape the way he approaches the drums and life. So cheers. You're kind of my guinea pig with a slight format change. Okay. So instead of giving uh, specific prompts to people like I've done in the past, like a, a specific record that changed your drumming or a certain sound or a fill, I just gave you the task of five songs, or sorry, five records in succession that kind of shaped your playing. And sure. as I completely understand, that's a very hard task. So can you <laughs> yeah. explain which direction you took it? Yeah. So I got to, I got to say, man, it was pretty upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was upsetting. It was distressing because people ask you that question. You're just like, dude, I don't know. It's like asking what your favorite color is. And then I just sort of always brush it off. But then now I had yep. to actually, actually do it. And, uh, you know, I sent you a couple of lists back and forth. I was like, oh, I'm down to like 20 records. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I was really difficult. You one, yeah. Yeah, it's really, yeah, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's really difficult. So, um, I just tried to have records that really had a deep emotional impact on me. And basically each one of these records opened up like a whole new world for me and had a very important sort of role to play in how I related to music, especially some of the earlier ones. So, um, so yeah, um, we'll see. I might, I might post something on something on Instagram going, here's the other like 30 records I really wanted to, <laughs> I really wanted to post. Um, Please do. And there's definitely certain, certain records like, um, that I didn't include like, you know, voodoo or continuum that like I would, everyone's like, yeah, duh. Like we don't need to talk about that because it's so obvious. But uh, anyway, do you want me to just get started on the first one here? All right. Do you want to play the first song on the first one or do you have a specific song on the album? Ooh, that is a good question. Have you read his book, by the way? Oh, it's incredible. I read it in like a day and a half, I think. And I'm not a fast reader. That's not like a (laughs) humble brag. It was just, I could not put it down. I, I audible, I'm a big fan of audible. And if, if there's someone, especially an autobiography where someone narrates it, I'm a really big fan of that. And he narrates it. Ah, okay. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to spoil it for people, but there's so much stuff in there. I just had no idea about. 
I know you think you think rock star, you think Keith Richards, blah blah blah, but you're like, dude, Phil Collins was bad. I mean, he oh, has yeah. a crazy life. Oh yeah, I remember someone telling me a story like anecdotally about him being in some recording session back in the '80s or something, and um, I think it was like, I don't know if it's, it's like Johnny Rotten or one of the guys from the Sex Pistols. I don't know. I was never really in the Sex Pistols, so I don't really remember their names. Um, was like in the studio. And he was like, oh, man, like Phil Collins is here, like kind of like clowning on him. And then they were like ended up having lunch together. And he's like, oh, like he's you know really nice guy. And Phil Collins is like, hey, man, you want like a bump? And then like he's like, <laughs> sure, because it's like the 80s. And apparently like like he took a bump and then he was like, oh, my God, I can't feel my face and started like freaking out. And then realized Phil Collins was like way gnarlier and heavier than he was. And it totally like totally fucked him up phil collins is coming in with the heavy artillery yeah. <laughs> uh well for for those listening so we are talking about genesis of course phil collins yeah so so to, to to give this some background one of the things that i thought was interesting with this record and another record that we'll talk about they're both compilations or pseudo compilations and i didn't realize how important that was at the time, especially when you're getting into a new artist. And it's also very interesting because I usually encourage my students to listen to someone chronologically because you can see how they grow. And I think it's really important. But, you know, maybe this is changing my mind on that because this record gives you such a wide span of different albums and you get like a little taste of each. And, you know, this came out in 92. So I was born in 84. So, yeah, I was like eight. Um, so... This is the first record. It's my dad he collected cars and and he was more of a like Chrysler in Chrysler Imperial sort of dude. He had a couple cars with really big fins um mm. on them. But I remember having, I don't know how I got it, but I had like a Cadillac, like a 69 Cadillac radio where it was like the back end and the oh, fins, geez. and you open up the trunk to like put the cassette tape in. Um and it's weird that I had that because my dad was never into Cadillacs, but for some reason I ended up with that. And I remember putting this cassette tape of this record in the trunk of the car and pressing it down and being so small. This is really the first record I remember having like a really deep connection with. And especially, you know, starting off with like Land of Confusion and then No Son of Mine and Jesus, He Knows Me. It's all over the place. And I remember just being so young and having like some of that stuff is pretty spooky. Mm. Um, and his voice has that quality to it, which is, which is, you know, the Peter Gabriel sort of thing as well, where it has this very specific timbre to it that sounds, you know, sort of far off, uh, and longing. And so, um, I got into, this is like the, the Genesis Phil Collins stuff. That's like not cool by a lot of people's standards. Um, and so this was like my first introduction to this stuff. And to be honest, I never really got deep into the Peter Gabriel era stuff. Maybe if I checked it out when I was a teenager, but like in my life right now, I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't really do a lot for me. So I got early, early on indoctrinated with, with his feel and his tone, obviously. And one thing he doesn't get a lot of credit for is his compositional drum parts. 
because he's coming at it from this place of the composer. So the vocal part's the most important thing. And then he's also thinking about horn parts and arrangements. And some of these records and some of these songs, the deeper you listen to them, there's these just small things where like he'll uh he won't he'll put like a cross stick in like one bar of the bridge and then it'll go and then it'll go away or like or like in um like uh uh mama like there's one crash symbol like five minutes into the song it's the only crash symbol in the whole song so it's it there's sort of these things where you get deep into them compositionally and it's not even something where you're like whoa that was crazy technically Mm-hmm. but it's just such a move that he makes compositionally where you're like, Whoa, that was so dope. Um, and there's t- tons of different examples. So it's really hard. I, <laughs> I mean, know. Jesus, he knows me has, has some dope. Let's just do that. Let's have some dope. And the, li- the lyrics are pretty brutal too. Perfect. Here we go. Jesus, he knows me. could be a song on the radio right now totally. it's timeless going into that verse that's sick. Exactly. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. We'll go through the next chorus. Cool. Keep playing. I was going to say, no. This one, guys. The bridge is so good. It's Damn, hard that's... to turn it. It's hard to yeah. turn it off, you know. I mean, he's he's such an amazing songwriter, obviously. And so it was funny because 
you know, I started playing drums when I was nine or 10 and that was like a total Nirvana grunge era. So I had this thing for years when I was a teenager where I was that was like this was like a guilty pleasure of mine because it was like literally the most uncool thing you could ever listen to in in that time period was like this, you know, polished, you know, Phil Collins hits from the 80s. And then I got older and I was like, oh, man, this revisited it. I was like, oh, my God, this stuff is so incredible. Um, And and uh I have this conversation with so many people all the time about him. He has, I was getting tacos with a friend last night. We were talking about this and Phil just has that, that uh, ironically, that assertiveness and aggressiveness and authoritative feel, which I think is sort of the secret sauce that made him so successful, even in something like Susu studio. Like it's like, you know, people make fun of that stuff, but then like, because it's saccharine sugar sweet pop music but then underneath it you have this super aggressive like fuck you attitude underneath everything pushing it up and propping it up which i think is definitely something i identified with when i was younger on some sort of subconscious level but he doesn't get enough of credit for that like his feel is unbelievable and obviously his tones, like, I mean, the snare drum sound on that record is, it's probably a Noble and Cooley piccolo, but, but I'm just guessing, but I mean, just unreal sounds. It's a shame that uh, a lot of young people just think, oh, it's my dad's or my mom's music. And they, they envision that mid eighties Phil Collins kind of vibe, but uh, yeah, dude, he's a monster. I mean, that's a, that's a punk yeah. rock drum beat. I mean, and he's just smacking <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and and, and having that to get it to get this to get it's actually on the left hand, which is really hard to do and make it feel good for a whole song. That's really hard. Well, I was going to say Phil Collins is a good a good person to bring up when it comes to your teaching, I guess, because it's if if Phil Collins would have come to you in the early eighties. Is he the picture perfect of someone of like, you're going to become this when you're older, so stop doing that when it comes yeah, to the ergonomics yeah. of your body? Yeah, I just had someone bring me up, bring him up to me this morning on Instagram. I mean, if I had a time machine, dude, he would be the first person I would go back to because you, not only was his use not great, uh, and that's generous, um, but his setup was equally as unhealthy. So, you know, he was sitting super low. Um, his snare was up in his chest. Um, he was slouched, hunched forward. Um, or actually I haven't looked at it in a while. I think actually his snare was really low. I have to, it's been a minute. I think it was really low. So he was sort of reaching down to get to it, which can screw you up pretty badly. Um, and he's the, the definition of this, this concept that I have to talk about a lot because a lot of people don't don't ever think like this. He's obviously unbelievably innately talented and gifted. And so he never thought about how he used his body. He never thought about how he set up the kick because he didn't have to because he could just play. So, you know, it, people are like, well, it's his own thing. And, and, you know, he's amazing. It's like, yeah, duh, he's amazing. We're doing a podcast about him right now, about how amazing he is. It's yeah. not about that. It's about the fact that as he got older, his body was so wrecked from improper use and touring for so long. And then, you know, if you read the, the autobiography, 
all the cortisone and cortisol shots he got for his voice and and probably his body yeah. ended up turning his spine into dust. And, you know, that's why he can't play anymore. So you put all that together and you compound it over decades. It's like Prince, man. Prince was jumping off huge Marshall stacks wearing stiletto high heels and he destroyed his hips. Mm. Um, and then because he was a Jehovah's Witness, he couldn't get surgery. And then he got hooked on opiates and, oh, I never you know, that. it's dark. Yeah, it's super dark. Um, so, uh, uh, so, yeah, you know. Is Prince amazing? Duh. That's not even the point, right? Yeah. It's like people don't understand musicians are athletes. We need to take care of ourselves. And if you have a lifetime of improper use or poor use, you become numb to yourself. And so a lot of these people don't even realize they're in pain mm-hmm. because they're so through trauma or, or, or misuse. They're so disconnected from themselves. They might not even feel it which is a whole other thing. So a lot of what I do with people is resensitizing them and, and getting them to reconnect with themselves and, and understand what's actually happening in their, in their body. And, and a lot of times people go, oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Like I gave a lesson to a guy yesterday and we spent 45 minutes just talking about breathing and how that's impacting his anxiety he's been having. And he was yeah. like, Oh, I thought I was, I really thought I was down the rabbit hole. And it's like, dude, everything that you're dealing with is totally fixable. And I gave him three or four things to work on that he thought he was doing correctly that would help his anxiety, but, but it actually made it much, much worse. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, this isn't about all about your fulcrum. It's a lot, it's a lot larger and a lot heavier than that. And it's about, like I say, like zooming out to zoom in, like, let's forget about the drums. Let's, let's talk about, your your whatever you want to talk about, whatever's gonna help, like your childhood, like whatever. I mean, I'm not a therapist or I don't pretend to be, but you know, where a lot of people dedicate their lives to this and 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 people tell me, like, oh, you know, why are you so serious all the time? It's like because this is fucking serious. It's life or death to me, mm-hmm. you know? And and so like um I take this shit really seriously because I've dedicated my my life to it, both as a player and as a teacher. And if I can have one lesson like with that guy yesterday and fix a few things and, and change his life in a really palpable way, it's a hell of a lot more rewarding than, than, than being on tour sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah. the grass is always greener, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I enjoy being able to, to, to do both and sort of mix things up when I can. But um, yeah, man, Phil Collins is definitely like the prime example of someone um, other than maybe like Vinny when he was playing with Zappa, uh, you know, I mean, that was, there's a picture of him that probably a lot of people have seen where he's sitting on the ground and his knees are like up in his face. Yeah. Um, it's wild. I don't know how people even did that. Um, so, so anyway, um, yeah, Phil just has like the complete package. Um, he has, he has everything. And then you, I remember when I was doing, uh, when I was doing uh, my old band Daughters of Mara, and we when we were doing the uh, the record with Garth Richardson, we were you know ha- having drinks and eating dinner or whatever. And he put on a record, and he was like, "Who who who who's playing?" Because he has a stuttering problem. He's like, "Who's playing? Who's playing drums on on this?" And by the way, so I don't get canceled here, 
all of his records say go, go, go Garth on them because he has a sense of humor about his stuttering okay, problem. Okay. <laughs> so he doesn't care that I'm doing this. Um, he would laugh. Um, so um, uh, he was like, who's playing drums on this? And it was just like shredding. And I was like, I was like, I was like 25. And I was like, I don't know. This sounds like Billy Cobham, but it's not. But I mean, I, I don't know. And he's like, Phil Collins, Brand X. And I was like, I'd never even heard of Brandex. And he's just destroying, like insane. So, you know, I mean, he really has everything. I, I, he's, he's right up there with like Tony Williams for me. I, I really think he's, as an artist, so important. Mm-hmm. I guess he's a good example of you, you know, you, you bring what you would change about him. A lot of people might rest on their laurels saying, well, I don't want to, spend so much time on technique because that's my vibe. My weirdness yeah. is my vibe. You can still right. have, and I'm, I'm assuming I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm assuming <laughs> there's someone, I'm assuming Phil Collins, you wouldn't come in and take away everything. that's Phil Collins. They start from zero. You would just go work on your posture, work on this, on this. You're not going to take away someone's vibe, but there is things that it's like, you're going to hurt yourself, but you can still be weird and, and, and unique and make people go, Oh, you're different, but it's not be hurting yourself. Yeah. That's all it is. It's like, I just want to make sure he, you know, he did, he doesn't end up in a place where he physically can't play anymore. He's in, or he's in pain. He's like taping his sticks to his hand. I mean, I, I know yeah. that, has, that, that might be, you know, other circulation, whatever neurological problems as well, but still it's uh yeah, well, he had a lot of problems with his spine. So, I mean, if you have yeah. problems with your spine, all your nerves run through your spine. So, you know, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I've been teaching someone, a, a close friend of mine, uh, who's one of also one of my heroes and he's had several back surgeries, um, from sitting on a pork pie throne forever, way too low, having no support. And he blew out, uh, his, his discs in his back. And he's had like several back surgeries and has like gnarly nerve damage. And there was a time when he was on tour and he like couldn't control his right foot. Mm. So like, because all the nerves run through there. So it's like, that's why I'm helping some of these people. Obviously those are two very extreme situations, but, uh, and it's, it's just like, it's the same thing as, you know, when you're doing therapy, like there's this myth when you, or with drugs, you know, there's this myth, like when you, when artists get clean or when you do therapy and you work through all your trauma that like, you're going to, your act is going to suck, you know? So you could, you could relate that to this too. Like, Oh, well, if I, if I like, <laughs> it sounds funny in comparison, but it really is the way people think about it. Like, well, if I sit up straight or use my body, I'm not going to be as like weird. I'm going to lose my vibe. And it's, it's just not true. Uh, if anything, it's just going to improve everything. And so that's, that's really what this is. It's not going to take away from someone's vibe. If anything, it's going to improve it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I teach people and they're like, man, I just got done playing a show. I could play a whole other show, you know, like that, that's what this is all about. And then they, and then they, you know, get off tour and they're not like all screwed up. I mean, you know what it's like touring. Yeah. I just got Brutal. off a two two month tour, and this is the first time. I'm 34 now. I'm still very young, but it was mm-hmm. the first time because like, after taking two years off, I'm like, oh, I am getting older. This is different than what it was when I was 31. Um, yep. 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 <laughs> hey y'all, I wanted to. <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum and it's incredible. 
It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right, so moving on to someone else who I also was going to talk uh, how much you would change their posture, which is Buddy Rich. And uh, yeah, Buddy Rich, very live at Buddy's Place, which I could also be wrong about this one, but seems like it came out in 74. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, where were you when this record came out and, and all that jazz? Well, the fu- uh, all that jazz, right? So uh, <laughs> yeah. so what's what's funny about this record is it's not like a popular buddy rich record and it's not a popular era uh if you look at the cover of it everyone's like super like manixed like 70s out um the wardrobe and everything and there's a flute player there's a there's a percussionist there's a guitar player so the ensemble is totally different than what he would normally play with as well and yeah. yeah i don't think i i didn't like choose this record on purpose i was just young and uh i think i got this around when i started playing drums i was really young for sure Mm. um but my dad would always play jazz around the house and he would always like be like once i started playing drums he'd play a record and be like who's playing drums and kind of pop quiz me or um or what are we listening to right now um i was always i was always exposed to to really good jazz which i'm which i'm thankful for um but what's funny about this record is I, I, there's probably a lot of Buddy Rich fans who hate this hate this record because it's you know there's some tunes on here that have like you know like the total it's 70s so it's definitely not like normal big band music um, but but hearing this record really early on you know Buddy was like the consummate uh, uh, wonder. wonder drummer you know i mean he was slowly the buddy rich the traps the drum wonder right when he was 18 months old on on vaudeville like playing drums so you don't get more gifted than, than that and uh, one of the biggest things i got from him at least as far as like influentially is being really cognizant of the cleanliness uh his playing is so clean mm. 
and you knew exactly what he was doing. And, you know, I got to give him credit. Like he had things he did, but he really didn't repeat himself that much. Like all of his fills were kind of busy. There wasn't a lot of space. Um, there were certain things you could pick out here and there he, he would do, but compared to other, other people who had definitely had things like, you know, like the art Blakey or Max Roach definitely had like things they would fall back on. Um, but buddy was pretty, uh, uh, I don't know, ingenuitive. I, I don't know. But, um, and his, te- his, his technical prowess with his hands, unbelievable. Um, so it was, it, it, it really set the stage for me having this idea of cleanliness and being of the mind of, I need to have my playing so where everyone can hear and understand what I'm trying to do. It's like, if we were trying to do this interview and I was right, like you're like, I don't know. So it's the same thing. Uh, And so, so, you know, the sort of side effects of that is it took me a really long time to understand Elvin. I didn't get it at all for a really long time because like the polar opposite um, equally is, is amazing, but it took me a long time. So that's something that, that has been a, one of the sort of, I think hallmarks of my playing is it, it's very important for me to be a, as articulate as, as possible. Um, but yeah, maybe if people are listening to this and they, and they listen to a lot of buddy rich, and they haven't heard this record thing like, whoa, this is totally different. But yeah, I, I remember I bought a, uh, t- to get back to your point, I bought a Rogers uh, a few years ago. I bought a Rogers Buddy Rich special model kit. It was like 13, 16, 22. And I remember the the guy sent me the Tom mount and I was like, hey man, you sent me the wrong mount. Like this doesn't, there's no way this this goes up high. And he's like, no, that's the right one. And the the, the Tom was so low. It was like literally on the side of the bass drum and, and you, and you look like, this is like the fifties too. So it's not like everyone doing that in the thirties and forties where it was kind of more common, but I don't think buddy ever really like grew out of that, but I set up that kit the way it was quote unquote supposed to be set up. And dude, the Tom was literally almost as low as my snare drum. Wow. It made like absolutely no sense at all. And when you look at pictures of him, like his, his rack Tom and his, is almost as low as his snare. So, and, and his, you know, um, his neck and the top of his spine, he definitely had that hunch thing going on. His posture wasn't great, but he was buddy rich. So whatever, you know, it didn't matter to him. Um, but it's the exact same thing. Like I would love to get it in a time machine and help him straighten out a few things. So he could have, he could have, you know, maybe not been in pain. He, he's an, also an interesting example because he was burning until he died. Mm-hmm. Um, so he didn't like hit a wall, like physically, but I guarantee you, he was, he was in some pain, but he was such like a macho asshole. Like, yeah. He may not have even realized it. Oh, I'm sure he was, he could have been at a nine out of 10, but just from gathering the kind of person he is, he probably walked on stage and it just didn't, he's like, I don't care, I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and then he goes to the hotel and cries himself to sleep till the next show. But <laughs> Um, so what, what's, cause I, I'm, I'm with probably a majority of the listeners. I haven't heard this record. So what, what song do you think is a good example of his cleanliness and, uh, or just any example really? Yeah. Let me, let me see here. Um, and while you're looking, I think uh, it's cool to have as a drummer to not have your isms, but your ism to be cleanliness and clarity, which is, uh, 
great. I'd rather have that be what people know me for as opposed to like, oh my God, he does this right, left, kick, kick, hi-hat thing. Oh God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, totally. Yeah. You don't want to be known for like licks. That's totally. like, ugh. Yeah. And just, just do the, what's the first one, like moments notice? What is it? Uh, I Well, at least on YouTube, the, the track listing starts with Chameleon. But yeah, can, okay. <laughs> it's probably totally wrong, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> no, what, no, whatever. Uh, let's just do that because people know that song. All right, here we go. In the wah. I mean, but that Hyatt's clean as hell. Totally. Bongos or congos, whatever they are. I remember playing this in a jazz band in high school. Sure, everyone did. Yeah, totally. I did too. how crank that snare is. Yeah, that conga bongo player is going crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah, looking at that uh, at that uh, the album cover. That that conga yeah. player is like he's front and center. He's like, dude, yeah, you're yeah. you're in the mix, you're in the picture. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that Buddy Rich was ever even able to play with a conga player because you know he's just he's berating everyone for stepping on his toes or whatever. Yeah. Um, there, there's another record that I it was really hard to pick between the two, but there was another Buddy Rich record that was like a Lionel Hampton. Lionel Hampton picks his Buddy Rich songs, and uh, I think it was like Jazz Masters or something like a, another compilation and. That record's equally amazing, and the fours they trade are. Pfft. So that that's a great record. Someone could check out too. But yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's like it's this weird funk kind of thing. It's like totally not his bag, mm-hmm. uh, but it it sort of strangely works in a weird way. And not not every song is like that. Um, but yeah, that was just something I learned. I I listened to a ton at a really young age that was one of my sort of introductions. And there's also another Buddy Rich record with Mel Torme that's called uh, Together Again for the First Time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a great record, a really great record. Uh, Obviously, like they're, you know, Mel Torme singing and people who don't know that, like Mel also played drums as well. But he's got some, I'm not a big fan of scatting, but but he has some great scatting on that record too. So there's a ton of Buddy records. I mean, he's a a huge, huge, huge influence on, on me. I don't, listen to him nearly as much as i used to but all throughout my teenage years i mean it was constant yeah nobody is is a drummer that um i'm embarrassed to say it's i know i should know way more about him than i do it's just one of those things i've never had someone sit me down and this is where to start and which is kind of what you're talking mm. about this is a good this is why compilations i know there's there's the purists that and i agree with you a lot of ways that you should start from the beginning and go but sometimes you need those compilations to get people excited and then you can go um, so yeah, I just need a good compilation 100%. of Buddy Rich. 
Okay, I'll send you one. Okay, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so number three is, uh, and I, I think I asked you, and you did kind of do it in succession of yeah. kind of as you're growing up. So the next one um, reminds me that you teach uh, Bill Burr, but yeah, Pantera <laughs> uh, Live 101 Proof. And uh, that's, of course, Vinnie Paul, the late Vinnie Paul on drums mm -hmm. came out in 97. But yeah, Pantera. So uh, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Burr because I actually got Burr into Pantera. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, because we when we started hanging out, he was like really into Zeppelin. I mean, he still is and really into ACDC. And I was like, man, if you really like ACDC, have you ever checked out Pantera? And and he was like, no, not really. And I'm like, well, Pantera is like kind of like a heavier version of ACDC in that the reason I love Pantera <clears throat> and Vinnie Paul so much is they have this like deep fried Texas feel to them. The reason why that band people can get into Pantera who don't listen to heavy music at all because they, it feels amazing. And because they had great songs, there's so many heavy bands now who are just heavy. And I'm like, is there a chorus? Like, what is this? Like, you know, like, and they just, every, every part of every song was so well thought out the chemistry between Dimebag and Vinny, I mean, they're brothers, so it was just un undeniable. Vinny was a super influential dude in terms of tone in metal. Like, he pioneered that clicky bass drum. Mm. Everyone ta taping quarters to their bass drum heads and, like, the Danmar click pad. I mean, that was that was him. No one did that before him. I mean, he has like the clickiest bass drum sound ever. And I don't actually like that bass drum sound, but when I'm listening to Pantera, it's, it's part of the, it's like, it's, I always joke around. It's like, it's so funny now with all these metal bands, you know, uh, everyone's playing eight strings and everything's tuned down to fucking whatever. And Dimebag's playing like a, a six string through like whatever it was like, um, randall's or so i can't remember but like has like super brittle harsh really harsh tone that is like the least cool thing ever today <laughs> but but you listen back to it and it just works so well and um so yeah so when i first started out with burr i was like oh man you got to check out pantera and i was i was like check out 101 proof first and he immediately just got like hooked and he's so He's so smart. I mean, one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. I mean, we were just talking on the phone the other night for 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 a, for a few hours, and um, he's just. I mean, there's a reason why he's so successful. He's just so perceptive. So what's amazing is he's so brilliant, and he'll call me, <laughs> and he'll be like, "Hey, check it out." So I was just thinking about this, and he he's so smart. He'll notice things that are so light years beyond where he's at drumming wise, mm -hmm. like conceptually, the theoretically, um, it's so fun to, to work with him and be friends with him. Cause I'll, cause he's so smart. He notices things. Like he called me the other night. He's like, I think I figured out like jazz finally, you know, like, <laughs> you know what, it, <laughs> what a statement to say. <laughs> I know. But then he backs it up and you're like, dude, absolutely. Absolutely. figured man. out jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's like what it means to, to him. Yeah, he's, he's so great. So, uh, I can't say enough great things about him. So, um, so I had a friend in high school. I, he, um, I feel like this was seventh grade. It could have been eighth grade for me. I have to do the math, but I had a friend who 
was not really into heavy music, but he got this CD and he was like, I was like, Oh, let me, let me borrow that. I'm, you know, kind of check the, I haven't really checked those guys out. And it just like exploded my head because they're one of those bands. I unfortunately never got to see them live, which I totally regret. Mm. But when you listen to this record, it's, they're so tight. It's absurd. And, um, it could be like they could have easily done their their, but they probably did do a lot of their studio stuff like this. I don't know to be honest, but um, I've heard from people like you know when Terry Date was producing some of these records, he was just like, I just hit record. Like this is just what they sound like. Like I didn't really do anything. Um, so the the way that they all play together, Phil Anselmo's banter is hilarious. Mm. Um, every once in a while I'll like post, post some of his banter on Twitter, um, out of context. Cause it's, you know, um, it's so funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just feels good. There's such a tight unit. It just blew open a whole door to me. And, and, and again, with the compilation thing, this, this album has songs from every record up until that point. And they only put out one record after that, which was reinventing the steel. Um, and that was it. So it gave me like a wide range of checking out a couple songs from each one of their records, uh, which was cool. And dude, becoming that's still to this day, one of the gnarliest double bass songs of all time. I mean, to this day, that is so insanely difficult to play. It's going to be really hard to pick a, pick a song off this, but, but why don't we just do that since I'm talking about it? Sure. Let's do it. Here's uh becoming. Check it out, which will all Jesus. That's a hard to play with your hands. Yeah. But you know that problem. Probably the best drum choice to do after the beginning of that song. Totally, the most right? Simple 16th note row. Yes. Yes. And then check out what Dime's doing here. They always complimented each other. They almost never played music. Power Bell Red. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You listen to that and you're like, oh, they're doing all the metal tropes, but they made all those metal tropes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I mean, they are like or were headbangers ball. If people are old enough to remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Yeah. And that's one of the things like because of certain bands, which we'll talk about in a second here, all the metal bands that have come out in the last 15 years, the kicks and the guitars are also locked. Pantera, they almost never did that. Like. You know, like Vinny's doing do 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 do
instead of like that would wouldn't be anywhere near as heavy if they locked in together and it would just be kind of a mess Mm -hmm. so i always try and get kids in their 20s to get into pantera because i'm like listen to how the the contrapuntal relationship between the two of them also the brothers so it's this whole other thing but can I uh, can I sort of break a rule here? Can I just can we play a bit more Dude, of one of course. other song? Do whatever you want. Okay, yeah. can you can you play uh, "I'm Broken"? Yeah, of course. Where Phil and someone the intro goes, "Songs I'm broken, I'm having a good time." <laughs> <laughs> Even the voice of that—that's what people make fun of, but they were the ones that do it. That's so funny. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah, they don't know they're playing in seven. They're just playing. Yeah. Yeah. In the pocket, dude. Well, and going back to, I mean, I'm not sure many people could uh, <laughs> tie Vinny to Buddy Rich, but the clarity in there and the clean, yes. the cleanliness. It's like the reason why that's so hard is because it's not busy. It's just you hear yes. everything. You feel it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And his drum tones are all super staccato. Mm. Uh, so, like, you can't – if you flub something, it's pretty – pretty obvious much like buddy having a super tight articulate snare drum sound um yeah it's funny i've never thought about that but juxtaposed next to each other Vinny's kick drums are kind of like buddy's you know <laughs> snare i mean i think he played like 24 by 24s i think wow um yeah it was like ridiculous um but uh yeah and then right before you you turn that off it's dude you gotta do do oh it's just like oh dude it's just so much space man like ugh. so yeah i i love him so much like one of my one of my all-time favorite drummers and again like that band works because it feels so good mm-hmm. and great parts too is there i mean i might cut this out just out of, out of respect <laughs> for Vinny, but is there anything like talking about his technique when you watch him does he make you feel happy or does from a teacher's perspective, you're like, oh man, there's things he was probably hurting himself doing as well. You know, um, he was pretty. I mean, the positioning of his kit was was a little wonky simply because he had square sized toms. Mm-hmm. So his toms were, I believe, fourteen, fourteen, fifteen, fifteen, sixteen, sixteen. I oh, believe, wow. um, and. Uh, on top of 24 by 24s. So you basically have to have those rack toms, like, you know, Lars, like looking right at you. Um, but the only thing I I really noticed with Vinny is he just sat pretty low, Mm. which everyone did. Um, you know, but, and he, and he wore gloves, but like, you know, he can kind of, I'll let him get away with that. Leave on hell wore gloves towards the end of his life. So I think gloves are fine. Right. Yeah. And Hawk has worn, worn gloves sometimes. Um, 
but yeah, man, I mean, when you, when you watch him play, he's pretty solid. Like, like he's pretty locked in, um, physically. Uh, he was a big dude. Uh, but yeah, nothing he's, he, uh, that was pretty much the only thing uh, it's like, I wonder what he would have done. Uh, he sat up just a little bit higher parts would have helped him out a little bit. All right. So next is a Meshuggah and it's chaos fear, which is the coolest name for an album ever. And, uh, you just mentioned him. You're a good host. You're pushing us along yeah. Thomas Haka and it's uh, from yep. 1998. I know how to pronounce his name now. Thanks to you. So yeah, Thomas Haka. Let's edit this. Let's do, um, let's do new millennium cyanide Christ instead. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Okay. cannot have an off <laughs> night if you're in that band <laughs> no you cannot jeez uh i remember asking when i first started getting to know thomas i remember i was like what happens if like someone fucks up and he's like oh man sometimes we just have to start over <laughs> yeah you can't really jump back in i mean i guess you, you no. probably can but you know yeah but i've seen them so many times and they've always been like unreasonably tight like for, like definitely the tightest band i've ever seen live for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I also got Burr into, into, into Meshuggah as well. Cause he's got, he's so smart. He sort of latched on to some of the like technical things that are going on. Um, and so the thing with this band, so it, it, again, it's the same thing as Pantera where it, this works because it feels so good. It's just that that song is funky. You know, you probably have seen like memes of like someone playing this song and then like rap, like low riders or, or like rappers, like sort of like dancing on top of it. You know, yeah. like it, it's like it's like funky in, in, a, in its own weird way. So um, and, and as far as I know, they were the first people to have that that quarter note pulse with the sort of odd figures looping around underneath or on top. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it funky. And Thomas is just like made to play in this band because there's so many songs that are so difficult to play. And he just makes them sit in this pocket and just groove super hard. So, I mean, my friend Paul showed me this band when I was in like, I don't know, like freshman or sophomore year of high school. Um, And I remember sitting outside my mom's house. This was the first Meshuggah record i ever heard and there were records before this but this was just the first one i heard so that's why i picked it uh it's not my favorite record but it's it was the first one i heard so Mm -hmm. and and i i think 
I think I described it in like an Instagram post is like simultaneously like falling off of a cliff and getting hit by lightning, like at the <laughs> same time, like, cause it, it, people, this stuff has been so copied and ran into the ground by all these, you know, bands that have come out in the last 15 years. But to, to, to hear that for the first time back then was just, I mean, it was just completely alien. Like I'd never heard anything like it. And, and I remember yeah, just it was really like it, that's what it felt like, like falling off a cliff and getting hit by lightning and just being like, what the fuck is happening right now? And then just and but uh, like bobbing the head and being like, I have no idea what's happening right now. But like this is what I can bob my head along to that that China or those hats, mm-hmm. which is sort of the secret to why this this band works. Um so yeah, I very quickly just just went and checked out the the previous few records. I think actually before that record, there was only um, um, Contradictions Collapse, and then and then the LP None, and then Destroyers Improve, which was uh, also a super important record. Um, it's only a few before that, uh, but yeah, I mean, and then nothing came out. I think in two thousand one, shortly after that which was a complete, the thing I really dig about them and sort of like Deftones where like each record they put out is a completely new thing. Mm-hmm. They've moved on into a new chapter and they've evolved and they've tried new things. And I have a lot of respect for, for them because they, they do that. Like destroy race improve sounds like destroy race improve chaos fear sounds like chaos fear. Uh, nothing is my favorite Meshuggah record. And that, I hated when it first came out. I was like, "Ugh, what? I don't like this at all. It's so different." And then, of course, like now, it's my favorite. Um, but uh, but yeah, man, I uh, these guys just did so much for my ears uh, and my phrasing, and it just is that kind of it. Just like all this stuff, just makes me want to like run through a wall. <laughs> yeah, you know, it just like gets you so like pumped. Yeah, um, yeah. It's probably why Bill Burr likes it so much. He can get his aggression out. Now that he's a father, he's like, I listen to Mashuga and now I can be a happy dad. Um, so listening to that, obviously, and I include myself in the category, you're, it's so intimidating. You're like, that drummer is eons ahead of me, but Thomas still came to you, um, without divulging. Obviously I know that's a personal relationship with you and your teacher, but what kind of stuff did he feel he wanted to work on? Well, he, um, he's had some physical problems. And so that was the main, main issue is we had to address like some physical issues that he was mm-hmm. having, uh, which were due to him sitting too low mm-hmm. on a, on a bad throne for a really long time. And that was eventually affecting his setup, oh. um, to the point where he couldn't play eight inch deep snare drums anymore because the snare drum stand wouldn't go low enough, which is wild to even think about. Wow, you think yeah. about how low you have, you have to be sitting to have that be an issue. Um, but, but that is very, that thing of sitting too low is extremely common. Um, and I, I mean, I have like a big stack of snares behind me here, but I, I actually ended up, I was fortunate enough to, um, because he couldn't play these deep drums anymore. I bought, like the snare from him years ago, which is a, an eight by 14 sonar, um, bell bronze course link snare that he used on, on that nothing record, which is like one of my favorite snare drum tones of all time. Wow. Cause he was like, I can't you play this anymore. And so I, you know, I bought it from him. So it's sitting right, right behind me here, which is pretty wild. Cause in high school I had 
you know, like when you had binders in high school and you could slip pictures in the front of them. Sure. Like, yeah, I had a picture of him in my binder, in my high school binder, like playing that snare drum at like Ozfest. Um, so it's weird that it's like five feet from me. It's, it's strange. It's cool. That's awesome, um, dude. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really, really rad. And he affected me. Uh, I mean, it's it was really hard to not put Deftones in this list because Abe and, and and Thomas had a huge effect tonally for me, especially the snare drum sound, the bell brass, bell bronze vibe. So anyway, um, yeah, it was it was some, some really serious physical issues that he had to work with, uh, work, uh, figure out how to deal with. And, uh, so it was mostly getting him to sit higher, getting his posture together and getting him to hit the bass drum, uh, ironically, uh, in a way that was much less taxing. And this is, he's a prime example. One of my all time, all time favorite drummers, like one of my all time heroes. And even though he plays some of the most insane double bass stuff ever, I mean, bleed is, is like becoming, it's like those two songs changed metal and change double bass drumming like what is what is possible and there were still things he he was doing that were like taxing and really inefficient uh like most people are so with him it was it was like a phil collins thing it was like okay we've got to sort some of this stuff out so we can have you plan for another 30 years because we all want that to, to happen mm-hmm. um and so so yeah that that's that's what i've only worked with him once but it was for like three hours and we talk all the time so um well coming from experience i've also only i've only taken a lesson with you once and i think it was almost three and a half years ago now at this point which is insane but um Mm -hmm. it's still one lesson not to say people shouldn't go back to you continuously but i'll say sometimes (laughs) one lesson with you can last a long you learn a lot and there's a lot to work on so it's it's worth it thanks thanks well i i want to help people so i try to like load them up as much as I can with, with things that they can work on. So I'm glad that that was helpful. Yeah. The main thing for me was, uh, I have, I like hi-hats. I have a lot of nice hi-hats and you showed mm-hmm. me how the way I was playing, I could have basically put two trash cans uh, and it would have <laughs> sounded the same. Cause I was so just like, could they have been tighter, you know, um, oh, with your, with your left leg? Yeah. Oh my God. I was just, yeah. just tent city over there. Um, yeah. that's, so you, you that's some, probably, you make, you make 15 sound like tens. Exactly. It was just, it was chaos. But, uh, so thank you for that. Um, (laughs) all right. So, uh, moving on to the last one, then we'll get to some, some questions. And then I do want to talk about your course. So, uh, number five is, uh, Brad Meldow and does the albums Largo. And I believe, I Mm -hmm. mean, Matt Chamberlain is the main drummer on this record, but you get, you you have a little bit of Keltner on there as well. Um, in Drizo. Um, but yeah, so which, uh, Uh, let's do, uh, let's do Dusty McNugget. Hell yeah. We're going to do Dusty McNugget. Is there an overdub of just brushes in the background? It sounds yeah, like it in my Kel- right. Keltner. Keltner's oh. playing brushes. Of course. Mm-hmm. 
just ghost notes. Yeah. breakdown jim's just doing the most not i don't want to say basic but it's a very simple brush thing but like the breakdown he makes that so heavy at the same time <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty gnarly to have matt playing drums and jim doing brushes it's pretty gnarly um so so that record came out uh what 2000 or 2001 or something when was it looks like 2002 according to the evil spot oh, okay all right okay yeah yeah uh, that would actually make sense because I graduated high school in 2002 and I've heard this record when I went to the Santa Rosa junior college for a year and I played, was playing jazz with this piano player, total savant, this kid named Joe. Um, and he was like, Hey man, he, he was like, have you heard the Brad Melville record yet? And I was like, what? Like, I don't, like, I, I didn't know who he was. And, uh, and I got it and the reason this record was a big deal is because John Bryan, who produced it, got a bunch of pop musicians like JMJ is playing bass on some of it. Um, and yeah, Victor and Drizzles on some of it uh, to, to play with, with Brad, who's usually doing trio stuff up until then. So, you know, they covered like paranoid Android and some stuff like mm. some other tunes. And, but this, I wasn't really familiar with Matt. I don't, think at all up until i heard this record and so the first track i think it's you're vibing me i think that's what it is that track is playing is woof, so good on that too so yeah like that's just the first my first exposure to matt and matt is is has become like a really close friend of mine which is so awesome and i you were saying the ghost notes, his ghost notes are so amazing. And he has this ability to have this sort of gridded out matrix underneath everything he's playing that makes this record and the Tory records and the Fiona Apple records, everything he's done. It, it, it has this sort of like the same thing that Haka has where it has the, it's almost like someone is playing like a shika, 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 shika underneath them all the time. Uh, and with both of them, that has to do uh, my theory anyways, with their left foot, going all all the time uh filling in that sort of matrix underneath them so this was the first time i got exposed to matt and i was like oh my god this like pocket this groove is just insane uh and because i was listening to everything we've done prior to this all the snare drums and everything we've listened to are cranked mm -hmm. super cranked like Vinny played an eight by 14 but it was cranked and Haka played, you know, eight by fourteens are cranked. Um, and Phil played a piccolo. Buddy played all kinds of stuff, but they were usually five by fourteens cranked. Um, and so this was the first track I really ever heard that had a detuned muffled snare drum, and I, it just blew my mind. I mean, it's funny in retrospect, but I remember, like, I remember listening to this the first time and just just having my head exploded and being like, whoa, I've never heard a snare drum like that before. Um, and I've never heard anyone play it like that. And um, so, yeah, it just opened up this whole world of, of tone and also Matt to me. And he is just, I, I can't say enough good stuff about him. I mean, I've, I've, I've 
hung out with him so much at my studio and at his studio and just seeing him play up close. It's just, he's just meant to be doing this. And I've never heard him play anything that sounds bad. Like even when he's, we're hanging out and he's fucking around. He's like, he's like, Oh, double bass. Like just fucking around. And he's, that sounds amazing. You know, like nothing ever is wonky with him. I know dude, it's, it's unreal. And he's, he just loves taking risks. He loves experimenting. And the thing I, I got to say that I give Matt so much props for is he's, he's easily one of the, one of the most prolific drummers of all time with the amount of records he's played on and the amount of tours he's done, uh, even in the last few years. Uh, I mean, Soundgarden, Bob Dylan, um, uh, Brandy Carlisle, like, I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, so the thing I got to give him credit for is he's still totally like a kid. Like he loves drums. He loves music. He, he'll just like, if he doesn't have um, a record to do, he'll just like go in and play all day. Like, I don't do that. <laughs> you know, I, mean, yeah. I used to, but at this point in time, I don't do that. So it's always cool having to be like, Hey man, have you heard this record or oh man, I'm working on this or, or like, just check out this weird loop thing I made. And, and it's like, he's like, he's like 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for someone who's so successful and so amazing, every time we talk, I'm just like, Oh man, that's right. Like I gotta, gotta be better at this. Cause you know, like touring and playing and like, it's so funny. You read these magazines and you're like, what so-and-so does to practice on tour. And you're just like, no one practices on tour. <laughs> yeah. That's not a real thing. I'm no one sleeping does that. right before yeah, you go on totally. stage. You're yeah. Dri- yeah. Or driving. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's just, I, I just, I got to give him props because he just has that infectious enthusiasm still. That's like this bright eyed, bushy tailed thing. And he has such a wide palette of music he likes. So he'll send me stuff that's, super heavy and then super out there. So yeah, man, I, I love Matt so much. I can't, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, and, and this record was my first exposure to him. And um, I mean, if, if, if kids, kids, you know, listening to this, haven't, haven't done a deep dive on him, just, just check out the, the Tori and the Fiona stuff alone is mm-hmm. absolutely bonkers. And, uh, and it's not only the, the pocket it's, it's the tones are phenomenal, equally as phenomenal. Well, yeah, and you were talking about the snare on that song. That's not this. It's not like he recorded these uh, all these tracks in one day on the same kit. I mean, the the mm-hmm. the snare sounds do change throughout this record as well, too. The Brett oh. Meldow one or the Brad Meldow one. Yeah, and yeah, I've told this story on the podcast. But it's not really a story. It's just uh, before the pandemic, at least, me and Matt went to the same gym, and so there'd be multiple <laughs> times, maybe a few times a month, I'd be you know in some weight section. I look over, and Matt Chamberlain's just like doing his thing he's, he's in great shape he looks great and i just sure. I, I i never wanted to be like hey man he's like what he takes his ear off like what are you like <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're cool all yeah. right bye you know i just never really approached him but yeah he oh was, i mean you totally you totally could have i could have I, yeah all the stories people have said you should have but i just yeah yeah <laughs> too sweaty yeah, dudes um, high-fiving well that's how i met that's how i met brain and brain is one of my closest friends now but I, I was at the gym, my old gym I used to go to in Santa Monica. And, and I was like, I was like, oh, that kind of looks like brain. And I like walked, I was like, Hey man, are you, are you brain? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, just sort of like, you know, taking me in, seeing if I'm going to punish him or not, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I was like, Oh man, Scott at DW is like a really close friend of mine. Who's a 
good friend of his. He was like, oh, oh, all right, cool. And then we just became like best friends, like immediately. So I'm saying, you know, who knows? That could have happened with you and Matt. You never know. I know. I screwed up. <laughs> I screwed up. Um, so a few, uh, there's a few uh, Instagram questions. First one, um, you probably, you did kind of talk about this loosely, but um, this is from Tom W. Trotter on Instagram. He said, is there any record or genre of music that you wish you learned sooner? Like, is there any music you were afraid, timid to learn and wishes you had explored earlier as a player? Yeah, it's a great question. This isn't a great answer. I wish I would have gotten into Tony Williams much earlier than I did. I didn't find out about him like until I was in my early 20s. I mean, I knew who he was, but I never really got into it. Um, but as, as far as genres go, I mean, I was lucky enough that I had a lot of great teachers. And so I grew up playing jazz and like metal, obviously, but I w did a lot of Afro-Cuban stuff when I was younger. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked on all sorts of different styles. Um, I mean, I don't know. I've, I, I could probably listen to, yeah, more more African music. I wish I would have listened to that kind of stuff, like more, probably more Afrobeat. I wish I would have listened to that stuff when I was younger and, and had a little bit more of that feel injected into my playing. I, I didn't really um, get into that stuff. And even now I don't listen to that stuff as much as I would like to. So I don't know. It's not a great answer, but hey, you it's know. your answer. That's, that's great. Yeah. Um, this one's maybe a little esoteric, but I, I still like it. So I'm curious. Um, would love to cool. hear about his eating regimen, especially on a gig day. <laughs> With your lessons, do you, do you suggest certain things to do uh, that would help drumming? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that everyone loves that Volta, <laughs> Volta video. And if you're going that, that crazy for that long and you ate, a you know burrito or some pizza or something like an hour before you went on, you're going to throw up. Yeah. Like hundred percent. You're going to barf everywhere. Um, so this is something that I have only sorted out recently. Um, and I, uh, Diana Linden, my sports massage therapist, who I've talked about quite a bit in other interviews and Instagram and stuff. She, got me intermittent fasting, which I tried before, but like the MCT oils wrecked my stomach and I was never able to like get it to work. But I had a trainer who told me he meant well, but he was like, Hey, you got to make sure you eat within 30 minutes of working out. And so I got into this weird thing where I was like, oh, I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, I got to be eating. So like, you know, I have enough protein and I'm uh, like, you know, all my muscles are getting what they need. And I ended up, you know, as an American, you get taught to eat three square meals a day. So for most of my life, I was really overeating um, and always full and tired and groggy uh, because when I wouldn't eat, I would get really lightheaded and sort of weak and shaky. But that was really just because I was used to always being full. Mm -hmm. So if I got a little bit hungry, I'd be like, oh, God, I'm a little woozy. You know, and it would just <laughs> be like I wasn't used to not eating. Yeah. So for the past six months, I've been... I've been doing uh, two tablespoons of whipping cream with my espresso in the morning. And then I go to the gym and that's enough for me to work out. And then I don't eat until about noon or one. And then I eat until about seven, not even that late, like probably five or six. And because that, if I eat too late, then I, it affects my sleep. 
pretty, which is something I've, I've figured out with this, with this aura ring. Um, so it's the same thing with, with shows. Like I, you have to eat cause you need fuel, but I wouldn't eat any closer to three hours before a show. Mm. Um, and if you're like, Oh God, I haven't eaten anything all day because you know how touring is. It's like a nightmare. Like it's, if you're like, I need something, just eat like a protein bar, uh, or something just to have something in your stomach, but don't overeat. Cause then you're going to get really, really messed up. Um, the, the less you eat really the, the, the better. And I'm not a nutritionist, but I mean, I've, I lost like 15 pounds, like right away. I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. I have way more energy than I've ever had. So it's essentially just intermittent fasting with like a bulletproof coffee thing in the morning. Um, and so, yeah, uh, with the, with the diet stuff, I would make sure you have some fuel in the tank but don't eat too close to the show and also get some stuff like this, um, like LMNT, like salt packets you can put in your water, mm. which give you electrolytes. That was really helpful. Uh, when I was doing Volta, they would put like salt in my water and, uh, because you sweat out a lot of it when you're playing. So I would you know, wear all black when I was playing and I would get off stage and it would just be salt stains everywhere like wow. all white salt stains all over my clothes because i was sweating so much and people don't don't realize that th- that's a very important sort of hack for touring if you're out there slamming like having these electrolyte packs or um salt in your water because you sweat a lot of that out i will link that in the bio for anyone uh, that is <laughs> that is curious um all right so for the sake of time let's just i want to i want to give a chance or give you a chance to talk about your course and so you did just release a new update to your instructional course uh, get out of your own way so can you explain what that means to people who have already purchased the course as opposed to people that are buying for the first time um what does the update mean yeah this <laughs> this is something that that i was sort of shocked how many people didn't really grasp how this thing functions. To me, it makes sense, but apparently it's mm-hmm. tough to understand for some people. So, so the deal <laughs> is it's, it's like a, it, it's like a book, yeah. right? So anyone who's gone to, to college or community college will understand that, you know, if you bought a textbook next year, you can't use the same textbook because they came out with a new edition, right? Yeah. So, uh, so it, that's really all this is. So when I came out with getting out of your own way in 2018, uh, I, there was, I was pretty wooden. I was like, Oh, I'll just do what I do every day. And then I realized when I was looking at the camera, it wasn't the same as teaching someone. So I looked kind of wooden. There were certain things that I needed to, to improve upon. Cause I sort of just did it off the cuff. I'm like, oh, I do this every day. I'll just do what I do in a lesson. Mm-hmm. So I came out with the next version of it, which was the redux, which was volume two, uh, maybe a year after that or so. And uh, and then because I've been studying so much breathing and Alexander technique and mindfulness meditation and Zen Buddhism and all this other stuff, uh, how the brain works, all this stuff I've been studying, there was a lot of things that I wanted to improve upon and, and fix or replace or add. So it's just, it's just a third, so this, this new edition, uh, hidden, hidden in plain sight is the third edition. So that's all it is. It's updated every, every time. And then the deal with this course that's different from anything else is it's a living, breathing course. So as I learn more, I will update the course accordingly every few years or whenever I see fit, uh, to reflect that. And because it's streaming only, and because I want the most current up-to-date information available, 
at all times, I will delete the previous version entirely like it never even existed. Mm. So you're, the only addition that's, that's available is the most current one forever. And the other thing that I thought was pretty cool is if you purchase it once, you'll never have to purchase it ever again. You just have access to all the subsequent iterations forever. You don't have to pay 30 bucks a month. You don't have to pay $300 a year annually. You just buy it once and you'll have access forever. And this latest edition I did at Sound City, and I have a cinematographer, and I spent a ton of money on this third edition. I didn't do some goofy Kickstarter campaign, you know, like I, it was just like, I'm going to figure this out. And so there's a ton of people who bought it in the first edition when it was less expensive because there was way less information. And then they just log in now like, oh man, this is great. I don't have to spend an extra few hundred dollars to get it. I already have it. So uh, no one else is doing that. And would I make more money if I structured it another way? Sure. But whatever, I don't care. Like it's, it's about having the best information possible and the most up-to-date information and, and everything as far as uh, on the cutting edge that I am aware of that I can provide to people. So I'll continue to do that forever. I mean, I have another thing I'm going to start working on here pretty soon. That's entirely different. Um, so, but yeah, but I will continue to, to update that forever. And, um, and I made it because I don't, I don't see anyone else talking about this, this, this stuff in any way that makes any sense whatsoever. Mm Mm-hmm. I do want to make sure that people know it's at DaveElich.com. You can uh, look up the spelling. It's just, if you're listening to this on a podcast, the spelling is on your phone. Look at it, DaveElich.com. And uh, that's where you can get the course. And all right, well, I'm going to go listen to Pantera, and I will talk to you later. Hell yeah, enjoy. All right, see you, dude. Okay, see you, buddy. Bye. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, Anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.